Welcome to the latest podcast in the Talking About Methods series. Today, I'm really, really delighted to be able to welcome Matt Dyson, who's going to talk to us about comparative methods. Matt is a professor of civil and criminal law at Oxford University and director of the Institute for European and Comparative Law. He specialises in the criminal law, tort law and the relationship between the two. And his work is often historical and comparative focusing on the last 200 years and developments across 10 countries. Matt is also Global Professor of Law in the London Law Programme at the University of Notre Dame, and he's also President of the European Society for Comparative Legal History. So welcome to the podcast series, Matt. We're really delighted to have you along today. I wonder if you could tell our audience a little bit more about the sort of legal research that you do. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. I think I'm most interested in the kind of why question. So I look at why and how legal systems change over time. The particular focus I've had is on the relationship between criminal law and tort law. So I tend to do tort law separately, criminal law separately, and the two of them together. And I look at the last couple of hundred years. I'd love to go back further. It just requires a lot more work. Every 50 or so years you step back is almost a new legal system in some places. I do about 10 countries in different levels of detail. Obviously, the English legal system system is the one I know best, but I've worked on a few other countries as well, particularly Spain, France, a bit of Germany, Sweden, and a few other countries. And so the idea is I, I want to look at why something changed when it did, why it didn't change earlier, why it didn't change later, why that change was the one that seemed sensible to legal actors at the time, what was their reasoning. And I try to trace a number of these over time and see if I can work out patterns in how legal systems change. So I'm trying to do something a little in the middle between the super micro detail of this this is why this particular case was decided why it was, or this is why that particular piece of legislation came in, and the very high level of abstraction of we're generally moving from status to contract, as the famous statement goes, and try to do something in the middle. So looking at little bits of why motifs in behaviours uh, in particular periods and legal systems. So kinds of questions I've asked look at how and why the idea of fault and fault concepts in criminal law and tort law developed. We moved away from a general sense of malice in the criminal law through to quite finely gradated forms of fault in English law, while other systems, particularly on the continent, did so in a different way and had less change. But by comparison to that criminal law story, tort law has changed in a different way in the same kind of period, sometimes cross-referring to how criminal law change. So that's the kind of research I do. There's other specific parts about methodology in legal history and particularly comparative legal history. And I also do some other work in the margins, but um, the main focus is on criminal law and tort law. That's fabulous. Really interesting introduction. And could you just give us a little bit of a flavour of the main themes that arise from your work? Sure. There's lots of different bits we could look at. One of the main things I'd say is the shape of legal systems. So why we bud or move the boundary between one area of law and another, what things we decide are supposed to be criminal, supposed to be civil, supposed to be contract, public law, whatever the category is, how that border allocation is decided over time, and then what mechanisms we have to decide disputes at that border, substantive disputes, normative disputes, procedural disputes, about what the content of law should be. So that's one major theme, how we cut up the cake of the legal system. A second theme would probably be something along the lines of how disjointed our reasoning is, how we end up with siloed thinking, and yet at the same time, manage to develop significant interconnections in real life. And that's one distinction that English law has, particularly as a common law system, about how it interacts with the real world, uh, which is in a slightly different format to some other legal systems. I'm not saying we do it better, just the way that we do it is quite driven by practical questions. 
A third theme would probably be how absolutely impossible this work is to do, how incredibly hard and depressing it can be to be attempting to do things, which genuinely will take you years. I've done a lot of work with other people because I think you need to draw together a network of individuals to do this well. I mean, serious work requires time, thought, energy, resources, and you have to keep going. The last book I did, which I might be mentioning a bit later, I was afraid of it. I was genuinely scared that I thought I couldn't do it justice and I didn't know if I could do it in the time that I had. So as a consequence, it took longer than it should have done and it didn't end up in quite the shape I wanted it to, bearing in mind it had to be finished during COVID lockdown. So I was slightly more restricted on foreign materials. But at the end of the day, you've got to accept that no piece of work is likely to be perfect and you have to be able to complete it. Those are probably three themes enough for now. And it's really helpful, Matt, that you draw attention to the problems, because one of the themes of this podcast series is really to alert early career academics to the fact that things are often harder than we expect them to be, and they change shape as we go through a project. I think it's really useful for people for you to normalise that. But I wouldn't call myself a comparatist, but I suppose we all compare in research we're probably not as methodologically rigorous in doing that as um, somebody like you who's a specialist. So I suppose the key question really in this podcast is, could you talk us through how do you go about comparing legal systems? What are the issues that are involved? Sure. So there's a huge number of things that are involved in this, and some of them might be obvious to you or less obvious. I think a first step is to say, what are you trying to do? Because some of your methods will depend on your purpose. What is your goal? Are you seeking to understand something? Are you seeking to explain it to people who come from a different kind of background? Are you seeking to reform the law? And I would normally say you should follow, if you're reaching that third step of wanting to promote some kind of change, start with the first step, understanding. Then consider who you're trying to explain it to. And only if you're absolutely sure you've understood it all and that you can explain it to other people, should you then be proposing something for change. So first step is purpose. Second step is to consider the resources and ability you have? How much can you tool up in time? Can you devote the time you need to learn another language? For my thesis, I learned Spanish from scratch, which I thought was doing pretty well. I was relatively chuffed with myself, though my Spanish now is bad. It's not great spoken. I can still read it fine. Then, of course, my doctoral supervisor had taught himself ancient Sumerian to write one article. Somebody else involved in the same overall project had taught himself Swedish for his thesis. So clearly, there are different standards against which you can judge your skills and abilities. My point simply is, what can you genuinely do in the time and resources that you have? The third point then would be, what kinds of questions would you want your resources to solve? So, for example, are you going to be doing quantitative work? Are you going to be doing lived experience work using interviews and other forms of empirical work? Do you have the training and skills for those? But what is that actually going to show you? If you want to argue doctrinally what the rules are, then empirical work could help you. You could help to understand what people think the rules are, but it probably won't help you as much as working with the primary materials and their secondary associated sources. But of course, trying to explain the effect of a particular criminal law rule in society just by reference to what a sentencing judge has said is going to be pretty poor evidence, though it will have some connection. So you've got to think not just what your general purpose is, but in particular, what do you want this piece of work to do? And that will determine quite a lot of your methods. I'm sure many of the listeners have thought of this before. But basically, you're then going to start making choices. First choice typically is about functionalism. This is a way of thinking about the comparative method that essentially says, look at what 
an object in another legal system does, not what it's called or where it is. So you say, for instance, if I was to compare the rules relating to behaviour between neighbours, noises, smells, etc., I wouldn't call it what the English call it, which is the law of nuisance. That is located within tort law in England. Because if I call it that, that could be a significant problem for when I look at another legal system where, for instance, in most of the continental systems, including Germany and France, it's typically thought of as part of the law of property. It's not part of the law of tort. It relates to the underlying real property rights that you have rather than interpersonal actions relating to what might be called wrongs. So if you go by the title or by the location, you won't be comparing the right things. So the functionalism method essentially says, look at what something does, not what it's called or where you find it. There are lots of other bits of baggage with that. So the famous proponents of this view, which goes back, it's a German tradition going back into the early 20th century, Ernst Schabel and others took it in part from other social sciences. But there are other parts that have been built onto it, famously by Zweigert and Kurtz at the end of the 19 or in the 1990s. And they argued that one might presume that legal systems were roughly doing the same thing. And they also argued that certain parts of the law weren't suitable for this functionalist method, those which were particularly morally loaded, which had particular cultural connections in a society. Those two components parts I think can be more easily argued with. But I'm quite comfortable with starting at least with a functionalist question. Ask when you're trying to compare, what does this thing do? But then I want to layer back in things that functionalism strips out. I tend to call these structuralism and legal cultures. So structuralism is to work out why something is in the relationship it is with other things in the legal system. Why is it that, for instance, English law doesn't have a separate regulatory jurisdiction for its criminal law, so you have criminal law or non-criminal law, whereas most of the continental legal systems have something like regulatory offences, ordnungswissigkeiten, police law, which isn't necessarily the same thing, but they have something less than full criminal law. Now, there's interesting questions about how we developed and why we developed the way we did, but fundamentally, I want to know why that structure exists and what it tells us about the work the law is doing. And then the third thing brings up a famous aphorism about the ways you can think about law. You could think about the law in the books, what you might research and see that it's apparently doing according to law books and law reports. You could talk about the law in action, which is the effect the law seems to have in the real world, regardless of a book in a library. But you can also talk about the law in minds. That's to say the way people think about law. Now, thinking about law could mean lots of different things, but from a legal actor's perspective, at least, it means why do they think that's persuasive when that's the rule? Why do they think that makes sense to them? And this could include a lot of things about the culture of the lawyers, the values that underpin those lawyers' decisions. And therefore, when I talk about legal cultures, it's a very complex story. There's a lot of contested terminology. However, at its heart, you're just trying to look at the human dimension of what law is doing. Why did the legal actors think that answer made sense? Why did it? they did not go further? Why did they make that decision then and then change their mind in 50 years? In terms of methodology, I'm saying I essentially start myself with asking functionalist questions, but I don't limit myself there. I then tend to ask, how does something fit within the overall structure of the system? And then also, why do lawyers find that persuasive? And it's not only lawyers, it could be law reformers and others. But for myself, I'm not as socio-legally qualified or talented as many of the other people who might listen to this and certainly as both of you. So I think for our purposes, those three steps are a sort of a, an introduction. There are other component parts to this. Language discussion is pretty important. How legal transplants happen can be quite important. But maybe that's a start.
That's fabulous. It's, it's so interesting to hear you talking about the approach. And the next question I really wanted to ask you was about what sort of skills do you think you have to acquire to be a good comparative lawyer? You've already hinted at some of those, the sort of mindset, if you like, and also the fact that it's considered good practice to be able to read in a number of different languages. Is there anything else that you think has been important to your journey in becoming a specialist in comparative law? You have to be very, very careful. It's so easy to bring your own preconceptions, your own pre-understanding of what an issue is and play it out in other legal systems. And it's a really healthy discipline to make sure you can strip back what the component parts of your own reasoning are by considering what might underlie them, both cultural factors, but also just your own personal training. It's not that all English lawyers think the same way about English law. So don't assume that all French lawyers think the same way about French law. There's a small joke amongst comparatists that somebody well known around the world for discussions on English law might be largely unknown in England, in part because the system in England might not favour somebody who has put effort into understanding other legal systems. They speak slightly differently to the other English lawyers. And also because sometimes the world's just not fair. Very good people don't get the recognition they deserve. But I mean, fundamentally, it's also a point that you can get lost in comparative law things. So it depends what you want your career to do and what your career needs. But you could end up known abroad, but unknown in England. So that's one thing about how you do the work. I'd say skill-wise, other than just that sort of patience and dedication and self-reflection, languages, as you mentioned, is pretty important because they're a classic route for understanding complexity. If you just see the words written in English, you'll think that that all makes sense. And it's just the same words that you use. But even very well resembling words like French, la faute, and English, fault, don't mean the same thing. Plenty of other concepts, even just the word taught doesn't mean the same thing in many other legal systems. Most other non-common law systems don't use the word taught. There's a huge variety of the words they do use, but they might talk about responsibility extra contractuelle in France. So it's liability that's not related to contract. It's almost a negative definition. The Spanish would say an equivalent word, so would the Portuguese, but they might add other things in. So the Spanish might say derecho de daños. They might talk about the law relating to damages. The Dutch, in translation at least, talk about liability law, which neither of those two terms, damages or liability, entirely make sense, I don't think, to the English, but not necessarily in those systems too, because liability exists and other subjects. And damages also come from, for instance, contract. So there's all kinds of loaded things that you can miss if you deal with them entirely in English. A third thing in terms of skill is a willingness to humble yourself because you will be like a student again or like a child again about another legal system, not only depending on the quality of your languages, but also in your ability to understand the complexity of that system. It's very easy to therefore think that either you're being stupid or this other system hasn't got the complexity. There's a really bad introduction to a book which I'm not going to mention but it was written by a law lord who essentially said in just a couple of lines comparative law doesn't help us other legal systems have the same problems as us but they don't understand them very well and it was such a bold statement by a member of the House of Lords appellate committee and I just think fundamentally misconceived when I say you have to be humble you also have to be able to understand that many of your colleagues might not agree with your choices or ask why should we have to know what other systems do I suppose other more technical skills yes you've got to be able to navigate various forms of bureaucracy. I remember during my PhD, I wanted to get access to what I thought was relatively recent case law from the 1940s and 1950s in Spain. Didn't really exist in the UK. There's some books in the British Library, but not a lot. There was a little in Oxford, but not complete. So I happened to be going to Spain. So I looked and they had one room in one library in the third or fourth biggest law library in Spain, which was only open for two hours, three or four days a week. And you had to have one person who had the key. Whereas to look up a case from 1940s in England would take me 
about a minute on my computer nowadays. Very different attitudes to precedent, very different attitudes to legal sources, different attitudes to access to those sources, the types of citations you would use. Many in other legal systems wouldn't find case law an important thing to cite in footnotes at all, and they would instead cite the major academics work which digested it in preference. So there's lots of those kinds of technical skills you need to work out, and that means ideally getting in contact with other people, working with lawyers in that system who have their own understanding. As long as you take each thing you're told with a pinch of salt, you should start by thinking, okay, I'm new to this system. Having somebody who might help me understand some of it would be useful. And what do you consider the value of comparative work to be? What keeps you hooked on it? Um, I struggle a little bit to understand how work couldn't be comparative, I'll be honest. If you're doing what I want to do, which is explain why something happened, if I restrict all my examples to one legal system, how am I really demonstrating this sort of causation or this explanation? How, How am I getting there? Because I'm just saying this thing happened here. In another country, very similar inputs could have led to different outputs. And that's why I think if I want to make that kind of explanation, I can't be restricted to one system. Another part of that, of course, is not just if you're focusing on the explanation. Why would good ideas stop at national borders? It's not like Cartesian mathematics made its way up to the channel and went, oh, I don't want to get my toes wet. I'm not (laughs) going to make it over to England. Why would these ideas be so limited? We're particularly lucky in the UK because we work with lawyers from many different legal systems in our universities. Not everywhere in the world is as open as that. In many systems on the continent, it wouldn't be very common to have, as in Oxford and many other universities, universities, 50% or something of the faculty not being from England, and many of those not being a common law system originating colleagues either. How could I think that I don't benefit from their different perspectives on what law is? I find that a very strange position, but I am often asked by colleagues, why do that comparatively? It'll slow you down. What are you adding? Why aren't you just talking about English law? And I certainly know that there are colleagues who would skip the comparative sections of an article. The last couple of times I've written works which are purely comparative, I've had to be very cautious about how I do it to enable it at least to be segmented in a way an audience only wanting English law can get what they want out of it, which is a pity. Other reasons, I suppose one might say, why should it matter? Why should we be so arrogant to think that only we have answers to things is one position. But then another position is, why should we think that the world should remain in the form it is now? I'm not necessarily pushing for things that some have pushed at in the last 20, 30 years, like European civil code, etc. But the history of the development of law is not one of individual nation states. It's of ideas moving. I'd be surprised if in the next hundred years, the world stayed in the same format of legal systems as it is now. I'd be very surprised about that. That's great. That's a really provocative response. And I wonder if I could finish up the formal questions by asking you what advice you would give a younger self about doing comparative law. If you have the mechanism to do this, can I write a series of pieces of information for my former self? There was a particularly bad haircut I experienced in my early (laughs) 20s, which I wouldn't want to live through again. If it's just restricted to comparative legal research, there's a few things I'd say. The first one is this will be hard. I mean, it genuinely is hard and it's so worth it. But you do fill up a lot of your brain space. So you have to find ways to do it efficiently. You have to find ways, ideally as a child, to learn multiple languages. It's such a gift if your parents or schooling can help you to learn languages as a child. I mean, under 10, because picking them up when you're older is so much harder. 
So that's one very early piece of advice. If I mean as a younger researcher, I'd say organisation, good notes is incredibly important, which includes not just your own ideas about something, but making full references and quotations for things. I did relatively well at that, but I definitely could have done better. A good, sensible filing system and record keeping system, backing up everything that you do. Nowadays, that's a lot easier than it used to be. When I was a researcher as a student, you had to use USB sticks or external hard drives. Nowadays, you can just use the cloud and it's done automatically. Similarly, when I had to look up for a particular period in Hansard, I had to go to an official publications room in a library and I spent a month. The same work about two years later would take a day or two because it's all been digitized. Don't assume you'll always have access to the same digital things. So do take copies of things when you get access to them because often the subscriptions change, the access changes. Don't assume you always get access to things. I'd also want to say that it's worth it it really isn't impossible. Depending on your philosophical view, there are some comparatists who argue true comparative law is essentially impossible. I don't think his views are quite this strong, but Pierre Legrand has argued that you can never properly understand another legal system. You can't understand why they think the way they do. But I think the practical reality is things that look like comparative law happen all day, every day. Don't be afraid to be bold with your ideas. Think creatively, but at the same time, don't assume you've come up with something that nobody else has thought of. Because in the grand scheme of things, that is possible. It's just not as likely as you might imagine it was. I'm starting to think of other pieces of advice which don't relate to comparative law, but I'll give you a couple of them in case that's useful. Don't confuse yourself with your work. You are completely separate as a human being. Now, you might start to identify closely with your work, we sometimes talk about a mirror thesis in comparative law. That's to say that the law in a society mirrors the society's values that it's made up of. There's various ways that this is false. So there are examples of legal systems which didn't experience much change despite very significant other changes. So there are parts of German law during the Nazi period which did not change. There are also plenty of examples of legal transplants from one system, quite a different system, into another. Now, we could talk about the exact detail of that, but simply to say the mirror thesis is something that people talk about a lot or the idea underneath it but it can't be as true or as simple as that. But don't make the mistake of seeing a mirror thesis between you and your work. You are far more than your work. It might be in the academic world something that is beyond just something you do as a day job. It becomes something we quite closely identify with. But don't make the mistake of feeling good only because your work is going well and therefore feeling bad when your work isn't going well. You also need to think about what matters to you about it. It's not reading 100 pages in a particular day and it's not writing 10 pages in a particular day. It should be the quality of the ideas that you engage with and how much you're making progress from day to day to week to week. I suppose the final piece of advice I'd give to a younger self is you can end up doing too much of this. There will always be more law than you can do in your life. So if you start focusing too much on work, you'll miss the things that help you to survive when you do end up getting that deadline, when you do have to make sure you finish that book. You do need to bank away some good memories and good experiences. And of course, I think comparative law is a great way to do that. Recently, I was doing some visits around Europe as part of the Institute for European and Comparative Law, and I got to meet some fascinating colleagues to hear about their work to try to support them, discuss their ideas with them, present some papers and seminars, talk to young students. And that's genuinely inspiring. It's genuinely thinking that we can each day make a small contribution to why we should exist, why we should make life better for each other. I think that got a little bit emotional. No, that's fine. I think we mainly have early career academics listening to this podcast. And I think that's really valuable advice. So thanks very much for that. And you've very kindly, Matt, given us a list of references that you think it would be useful for people to delve into if they're interested in finding out more about comparative approaches to study of law. Would you mind walking us through those? 
Sure. So there's a few different pieces you could look at. There's lots of different methodological debates. I picked the first one would be Rodolfo Sacco's work. We sadly lost Professor Sacco a few years ago. A really powerful and interesting piece. He talked about legal formants. There's a lot in this two articles that go together, but the underlying message was don't use a particular unit, which is the doctrine itself. Each idea you want to look at could have underneath it a core idea within layers of something on top. So I tend to talk about this is being clothed. So if you imagine a particular idea, a kernel of truth is either a type of doll which has clothes on that you suit the particular environment for, or you put it in an automobile or beach house, or you could think of it as a seed underneath layers of supportive material, which in due course changes into something else. It's a really powerful pair of articles. There's lots of detail about contract law and other examples that he goes into, but essentially that we layer understandings onto the core of an idea. I find that particularly powerful because I think there are too many assumptions about what underlying units of comparison are and what we must obviously think about each other and our laws. A particular legal solution, once you've been taught it in your own system, seems obvious in the form it's in now. So that's the first one, Zacco's legal formants. I've put another one on. So this was Jeffrey Samuel's Can Legal Reasoning Be Demystified? I don't know all of Jeffrey's work. I know him. I know this. I think a lot of it comes at a slightly squiff angle. That's to say he comes at things from a different perspective that you might have imagined. And that's a really healthy thing to be exposed to. This this piece draws as much of the comparative reasoning does at various points in its methodology on some social sciences work, particularly the French social scientist Berthelot. He argues in this that there are ways that legal reasoning is basically mirroring other processes of reasoning that have been discussed elsewhere. I'm sure drawing on social sciences literature to help you out instead of trying to reinvent your own pretty poor looking wheel is something that uh, you're very familiar with as fights with lawyers over time, Linda. But he essentially says there's ways of constructing reality, schemes of intelligibility we apply over the real world. And I think it's a really useful piece for people to think through how they're constructing their idea of fact and law. And also it affects how you write. It helps for you to challenge the narratives you want to employ. I've put Essen Aruchu's piece, Comparisists in Extraordinary Places in Le Grand and Monday's Comparative Legal Studies, Traditions and Transitions from 2003 on, because she does a really nice summary of of different ways of thinking of what comparative law is doing and different ways of conceiving of the terminology. And at one point you might go, well, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of listing. But I think she very, very cleverly shows enough that every member of the audience for that piece sees something slightly different in there. A different bit will be persuasive for you. She has a choice in due course in this and her other writings about how she likes to talk about the process of, for instance, transplanting one idea from a legal system into another. But I think it's a very nice tour de force of the different kinds of things you could be thinking through, methodologically speaking. I should say there are so many good pieces on methodology. I found myself in harmony with some of Thomas Lundmark's work on charting the divide between the civil and common law. But that just seems to be a fun instance, which you might get in time, listeners, that you find someone writing something that essentially expresses what you already do. Like you just, well, that's the way I teach it, or that's the way I think about it. It can be tricky because then you start to agree with this person when you shouldn't just agree with people who happen to hold the same ideas as you. But it was quite a lovely experience to read that. There's other really good books about it. But I think those are three that I'd recommend. Great. Thanks so much. And I'm going to ask you a slightly left field question that I haven't alerted you to in advance, but I think it will be a relatively easy question for you to answer. As a sociologist, I worry a lot about my sampling frame. What is it that I am actually choosing to work with and compare? And how will that choice skew the outcome of the research? I wondered if I could ask you a question about how do you actually go about choosing which legal systems to compare? 
prepare? You've got a research question. What's the next step in the selection process? In a way, that's easy because legal systems as a whole, there are distinctions between them and you can select and justify. Lawyers as a group, certainly comparative lawyers as a group, tend to be somewhat generous about your choices. There's different particular answers you could give, but in general, people will accept it. I wouldn't say we're a very tough crowd, but that's partly because there's a huge number of problems. So problem one, what materials can you get? Problem two, what can you understand? It's not just language, it could be script. If you try to read the Gothic script of the 1900s in Germany, that is just going to slow you down dramatically compared to even if it was just typed out in the modern form. So what can you get and what can you understand? What languages do you speak? What materials are you able to get? All of that is one particular parcel. But then it's understanding the context, the socio-economic background of that country. And there's a timescale problem about how much effort you can spend over time. But beyond all of those, there's just what's interesting or not. In some instances, France and Belgium, which until very recently, Belgium successfully brought in a new code. The Belgian civil code was almost precisely a copy of the French civil code of 1804. Now, on some questions, they've actually diverged on their law. And it'd be fascinating to go, well, why do the Belgians do this slightly different thing? But on other questions, it was very, very, very similar. And so just simply comparing across a national border won't tell you a great deal. So even aside from all the availability and intelligibility questions, there's what is a useful story? Why is this helping you? And that's very substantive. And you don't normally know that until you've got into it enough. So there's a bit of iteration, bootstrapping, where you sort of say, well, I think I know a little bit. Maybe I'll look a little bit more here. Maybe this question's useful. And then finally, there's comparability. Are you able to identify what it is about these things, these legal systems, these rules, which are useful to you, and then express that as a clear enough story? There's a whole set of those rules. And obviously, they tend to be self-reinforcing over time. Once you've acquired more skill in, say, Spanish law, then you tend to look more quickly to Spanish law because it's quicker and easier for you to get to each of those things. But you still have to be willing to say at a certain point, uh, this story isn't as interesting for me about Spain. So it's not a great answer for you in the sense that it's very, very context specific. But on the other hand, it is, as I say, practically, you have to be looking across technical questions, but also substantive questions. There's also some reality to the world, though it's massively oversimplified simplified for some, that there are some leading traditions inside legal systems of the world. So the common law tradition is a significant player, though it is by far a minority in the world. The French, the German, distinctive traditions. There are others. So the Scandinavian legal realists, depending on the time period you're looking at, there's some fascinating things in Spain earlier, uh, an Islamic or an indigenous type of grouping with many different variants inside. So one answer is to make sure you move across multiple of these types. I don't want to use the word families. There is a group who have argued about legal families in the hope that that at least helps you to find a good comparative touchstone. So a fun example is the US. The US has at least 50, probably at least 51 tort law jurisdictions. You can't do them all easily, though the American Law Institute's restatements do. It takes them years, decades. So one version for the US is to pick the states which are the most populous, the most economically important, the states where there's the most litigation. So you end up picking sort of case study states. And it would often be something like, I probably won't get them all, but California, Texas, New York, Massachusetts, Delaware. I'm probably thinking of an obvious one that I'm missing. One or two others, maybe. And therefore, you hope to get enough examples. I would not say comparatists have as much methodological chops as probably uh, sociology and sociolegal scholars do about these things. For many, it boils down to the countries they already know about, because in practical terms, that's the only ones they can find out more about.
No, I think I'd always take pragmatism into my selection of what I was going to look at. And I think it's important to say it can't always be a perfect sample, you know, that we have limitations in terms of our time and ability as well. Very reluctantly, Matt, I'm going to draw this to a close now, but I wanted to finish by saying thank you so much. It's been a really fabulous podcast and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. No, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this Talking About Methods session. If you'd like to see the list of publications that we referred to in the podcast, please go to frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk. If you have any ideas for a blog or a podcast, please do get in touch with Linda Mulcahy at the Centre for Sociolegal Studies. Thanks again. Bye.